Ditch the clowns on the left. And the jokers on the right. And join Michael Smirconish right here in the middle. This is the Smirconish Podcast for independent minds. Mark O'Mara has been a fixture in the Central Florida legal community for a few decades now. He is the founder and lead criminal attorney for the O'Mara Law Group, a nationally renowned criminal defense attorney. You, of course, remember his high-profile defense of George Zimmerman in the Trayvon Martin case. No one better to break down what's going on in the Ahmaud Arbery murder trial than this man. Hey, Mark, thanks so much for coming back to the program. Oh, great to be here, Michael. Good talking to you. So I've been dipping in and out of Linda Dunikoski's rebuttal closing argument, and, and the audience, I think, is up to speed with what's been transpiring. The question I want to ask you is, through what legal lens should we be evaluating these facts? Give us something that provides framework for our own analysis. Sure. Um from the defense perspective, of course, they want to start with this citizen's arrest. They want to get in the jury's mind that we thought that we could do this, even if we couldn't, even if the prosecutor is telling you that technically it's not an appropriate citizen's arrest. We thought we were doing right. Right. We thought we were protecting the community. Of course, when we take that context and start looking at some of the closing arguments of defense counsel, when they start talking almost in dog whistle speak about this person who's, you know, coming into our community and then this person without socks and, and dirty toenails and all of that, that is to try and, and infect, I think, the jury with this fear. But they start with the citizen's arrest to, uh, to get the focus on Ahmaud Arbery. But then they go right over to self-defense. And for the, from the defense's perspective, self-defense offers a lot of cover. Because self-defense, of course, is what is seen through the eye of the beholder, the defendants in this case. When they come in and say, we reasonably believe that imminent fear, that we had imminent fear of great bodily injury at Ahmaud Arbery's hands, uh, then they can react to it. And, and Travis, most particularly, if you really look at it from, from a, a legal perspective, from a self-defense legal perspective, then... Travis comes up and says, look, yes, we were trying to stop him under this presumed citizen's arrest. But when he turned and came at me, then it became the gun was in play for either one of us. I'm allowed to defend myself. I'm allowed to use reasonable force, including deadly force, because this gun is now in play. And that's going to be the defense perspective or, or as you say, the the prism through which uh, the defense wants the jury to look at this to at least suggest to them that there is a reasonable doubt as to whether or not the defendants were acting in self-defense, because if reasonable doubt exists as to self-defense, then legally it's an acquittal. Well, that was excellent. Of what significance that the three seem to have been the instigators? And that's the part about the self-defense statute that the defense defense doesn't like, because— The law says you are allowed to defend yourself and you're allowed to use deadly force to defend yourself against imminent threat of great bodily injury. But you can't be the one who caused it. You can't be the one um, who began the process within which now you have to defend yourself. It's that aggressor. I can't be the aggressor, Michael. I can't come up to you, you know, and, and threaten you or say this or do this or run after you or hit you with a truck. Or, or corral you like a rat 
And then when you react to that, I shoot you. And that's the essence of this aggressor standard where they say, we'll give you the benefit of self-defense, but not if you start it. An excellent example, I thought, and, and I, I do love the way the prosecutor is, is really talking to the common sense of the juries. The example yesterday concerning the bully, right? The three bullies who come up to the kid and push him up against the locker. And finally, he reacts and pushes back. And the bully says, look, he started it. I thought that was a great common sense perspective because it, we all know about bullies in school. And it really sort of hits the heart of what the prosecutor has to show the McMichaels and Brian DeBee, which is the initial aggressors who now have taken themselves out of the protection of the self-defense statute. So I, th- I think you've given me the good prism through which the defense wants the case seen. The prosecution response is what? That very simply, you cannot make presumption upon presumption upon presumption and then ask for protection from a jury or from the self-defense statute. Ahmad Aubrey was not committing a crime. There's absolutely no evidence of that. The presumption that he was, whether it's racially biased presumption or whatever else may have caused it, the McMichaels made improper presumptions. They chased the guy for no reason other than they seemingly wanted to chase him or presumed he might have been doing something wrong. Obviously, a black guy running in that neighborhood, the presumption may be he's doing something wrong. So the prosecution has to get across that even though, yes, when the gun is in play, perhaps technically on a law school exam question, Travis McMichael might be able to protect himself However, when they started from the chase to the continued chase, don't forget the prosecution's perspective of, look, he's running away for five minutes. That's a long five minutes to be running away. And finally, they do, in fact, quote, trap him like a rat. And so he reacts because presumably he has no other choice. I will always believe that there was something said by Travis McMichael to Ahmaud Arbery that we have not heard in evidence because... Travis McMichael would be the only one to say it. Something caused uh, Aubrey to turn left to go after him rather than to continue running. I don't know what it was, but it seems to make sense. But the prosecution's perspective is exactly that. You can't be the aggressor. You can't have these negative presumptions that put you in a position of chasing somebody down and then run back and try and hide behind a self-defense statute or a citizen's arrest statute. You don't get the benefit of those protections when you are the aggressor. In other words, your speculation is that Travis McMichael said something to Ahmad Arbery in that critical sequence that drew Arbery toward him, that caused a reaction from Arbery. Yeah, and it just comes from 35 years of doing this. You know, Ahmad is trying to get, and I'm not offering, I don't know any of these people, but Ahmad's trying to get away from these three guys, and two of them with guns, a third with a car. And he's doing whatever he can, back and forth and turning and this way and that way, running around the car. And now he's making a right-hand turn to get around the back of the car. And for some reason, at the precise moment when Travis McMichael comes around the, the driver's door of the car with a shotgun in hand, and Ahmad reaches the, the point of the right front corner of that car. For some reason, Ahmad made a decision to turn left and go at Travis. My thought is something was said, some threat maybe, some indication, some plan was told, was said to Arbery, 
that cause that response. And the reason why I say that is my own insight of common sense. You don't turn towards a gun uh, when you're trying to run away unless you believe it is now immediately necessary. So, again, my supposition, no evidence to support it, but that's what I think happened. Mark, you made reference to this. Attorney Laura Hogue represents Greg McMichael in her closing statement yesterday said the following. Turning Ahmad Arbery into a victim after the choices that he made does not reflect the reality of what brought Ahmad Arbery to Satilla Shores in his khaki shorts with no socks to cover his long, dirty toenails. Your analysis is what? I had a conversation with a lawyer friend last night who hadn't been watching. I had been. When I said it, his response to me was, oh, so the guy wasn't a runner. And I said, that's not exactly how I think she intended it. Um, So, look, I I try to be circumspect with how to handle a case of in southern Georgia, in Brunswick, where you have 11 people on a panel, 11 white people on a panel. Um, I don't even know that that's a dog whistle. I think that's a bullhorn. I mean, I think that what they what that attorney said directly to her 11 to one white panel was this black guy with dirty fingernails. And, you know, the type I'm talking about should not have been my neighborhood, should not be in your neighborhood. You should be afraid of this black guy. Uh, You should be fearful, just like the McMichaels were. And thank God the McMichaels were there or this guy with dirty black fingernails could be running around your neighborhood. I'm surprised and I shouldn't say this. I'm surprised that we didn't hear something like that nappy haired guy. Right. How much Mm -hmm. more racist Mm -hmm. can you get than than to say something like that to a jury? Not to mention on national TV, but just to, to be that racially insensitive. I thought it was horrific. So I, I have the handicap of, well, I have the pleasure of speaking to Mark O'Mara, but the handicap of the prosecutor getting her rebuttal right now, I have to believe she'll address this, right? She has to. I, you know, it's funny because I, I think I mentioned a moment ago, I really like her presentation. It's the, I like the methodical nature of it. I like the common sense. I like that she is just chipping away at the defense case and the sort of absurdity of it. I'm hoping, and I've been watching along with you, Michael, I'm hoping that we're going to see a touch more emotion out of her. I think she needs to get angry. I think she needs to instill in this jury, this is garbage. Do not buy this. Do not buy this behavior from the defense counsel. She won't reference the one attorney trying to get Reverend Sharpton out or Jesse Jackson out or all black pastors out or daring to call this trial like a 21st century lynching. But my God, they have infected this trial, not just with race, but with racism. And that's horrific. Mark, there are three defense lawyers in that courtroom. And and I, I found so jarring what attorney Laura Hogue said yesterday, the audio that I just played. And I'm, I'm now listening to you and I'm wondering as a practical matter do you think the other lawyers knew? Do you think that, like, do you think they decided among themselves that she was going to be the quote unquote heavy on this? Do you think they were surprised when she said that? No, I don't think that they were surprised because I'm sure that they talk and I'm sure that they've decided who's going to cover what points and who's going to make some high points and low points. We know that tactically, we as defense counsel or any counsel look at this and say, what are your high points? You know, when you get into the 
the meat of it, we sometimes bring female attorneys in on cases for a particular tactical reason. We sometimes bring lawyers of color in for a tactical reason. That, that's good strategizing. In this case, there was no question that they, I, in my opinion, they, they played this out in a way where they would be who they needed to be to get these points across. The third attorney, Go, I, I, don't, I don't quite get him, but there was no question that he was playing the role of throwing all these motions for mistrial out there, being aggressive and insensitive and racist in the way he was presenting these arguments against, again, Sharpton and, and Jesse Jackson and just this whole idea of how dare there be protests outside a courthouse. But I have to, uh, I, I, have, I have to, yeah, I have to part company with you on this because I, I was offended yesterday by whoever these black militants were, and that that description I don't mm-hmm. take lightly. But they were they were open carrying. Uh, the semantics of it will be important. I'll say this: they weren't pistols; they were long guns. Right. And now right. they were chanting, and the judge was saying, "We're going to move the the jurors into an interior room because we can hear them." I thought that mm-hmm. was an attempt at at, uh, at jury meddling. So, so we don't part company because I agree with you on that. The problem with it is that, and I'm not giving them cover, but so what is, let's throw it right out there. What is the black community supposed to do when one attorney gets up there and says, keep Sharpton out of here, keep Jesse out of here, keep black pastors out of here, and starts talking about a lynching? Okay, so what is the response? I don't, I'm not saying that, that I give them cover. It's the response is, bring long guns and caskets and things like that that were out there. I got that, but my God, what else are we supposed to do to try and balance some of the, the harsh realities that we're dealing with outside the courtroom when it's being highlighted inside the courtroom? So I, I had a different take. I'm so glad you're here. Here, here was what ran through my mind when I, when I saw Kevin. It's Kevin Go-Gow. I'm not sure how it, it's yeah, pronounced. So he, okay, so he was the one who wanted to, to bar, quote-unquote, black pastors from the courtroom. When I thought about that, I said to myself, maybe as a practical matter— Maybe he has a practical matter. He should be hoping that Al Sharpton, Jesse Jackson and whomever else they can gather with them show up, because if I were a juror and I, I look now at a courtroom that in, had all those personalities in it, maybe I would say, wow, I think they're here to influence me. Right. No, I, I agree. Look, look, there is theater going on without right. question. And Go decided to identify that theater for the judge. He did it in what I thought was a fairly racist way. But yes, he was identifying that theater. And look, let's face it, there's no question that if I was talking to Al Sharpton, and it was a question of why are you going in that courtroom, it is to show solidarity to the family. And he is a personality. He does have a presence. So that presence might be felt by the jury. However, following through with that theater, I'm concerned that it doesn't have a negative blowback on this mostly white, mostly Southern jury, Southern Georgia jury, because they right. may look at him and say, whoa, OK, I'm going the other way. Yeah, well, I'm going the other way. Yeah. Oh, man. Well, we shall see. Look, uh, in, in the end, I thought that the Kyle Rittenhouse 
outcome was justified by the law. I wasn't shocked. I My audience knows I thought they'd have gotten him for reckless endangerment, something just so he didn't walk yeah. out of there scot-free. But that's not what happened. Uh, in this case, my hunch has been all throughout that the three would be convicted, but I'm, I'm certainly not saying it to a certainty. Are you? I'm not at all. Matter of fact, I suggested early on that Rittenhouse might be acquitted because when you look at the individual events of self-defense, they truly were self-defense. I agree. Some 17-year-old playing G.I. Joe and make-believe medic with an AR-15 should not have been there. But under the law, the acquittals were appropriate. In this case, I am, if these were 12 law professors, they would be convicted. I'm very concerned without insulting the jury. I'm very concerned that it is going to be virtually impossible to get unanimity uh, for a conviction with this panel. Well, and Mark, a final thought, and I, I know you've got, a, you've got a run, you've got a hearing, but I'll just say this. In the end, it all comes down to the critical sequence in front of the truck where we can't yeah. see everything. And you've got Travis McMichael saying he, he came for my gun. Yeah, completely true. That's the exact point. And unfortunately, the video, the only thing that got us to having a trial was that video. Without that video, there would be no trial. There would be no No. prosecution. No. But even with that video, yes, the one moment that matters, that left hand turn by Ahmad is is hard to see, which is why the prosecution has to focus on the lead up to it. They have to focus on the aggressor. They have to focus on you do not get the benefit of the statute when you cause what you caused. Because at that precise moment, if I come at you, Michael, for whatever reason, and you have a long gun in your hand and I grab it, the gun is in play. Can you now shoot me? Well, I'm grabbing the gun for a reason. And now you are in reasonable fear of great bodily injury, me using your gun against you, and you're allowed to use it against me. And that's just the law. Yeah, it it almost makes irrelevant the five minutes that came before it. It, it sort of does. It, it really, if you get away from the aggressor um, exception, let's just say we didn't have that, then yeah, once you go for my gun, it's in play. It's no longer my gun, it's the gun, and whoever gets control over it can use it. Mark, thank you so, so much. I really appreciate your time and expertise. Good, good chat with you again. Have a great Thanksgiving. Always good talking to you. You too. Thank you, Mark. Mark well. O'Mara is the founder and lead criminal attorney at the O'Mara Law Group and a fixture in Central Florida legal circles. Isn't that interesting? If, if you get around, he said, the, the aggressor aspect, in the end, you've got the final sequence in front of the pickup truck and you can't really see it. And if the jury believed Travis McMichael when he said he came for my gun then it almost renders irrelevant the five minutes that came before. Hear more of Michael Smirconish on Sirius XM's POTUS, Channel 124. Live weekdays from 9 a.m. to noon east or anytime on the SXM app. Connect with Michael on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and at Smirconish.com. Michael Smirconish for Independent Minds.